0: All right, I guess it's unofficially demon week for Pastor With No Answers podcast. Last episode, I sat down with multiple people as they shared what they found, for the most part, to be a supernatural experience, some of those, including demonic activity. What I would love for you to do, and it's in the show notes, click the Pastor With No Answers discussion page. I've got some polls up there. I would love to hear, according to you, which stories in the last episode were the most believable to be supernatural and which ones do you want to call bs on go check it out would love to hear your thoughts do you like candy corn i like candy corn i like the big old fat pumpkins that's like two candy corns together that's really cool you know i think about halloween and I'm serious. When I walk by the aisle in the grocery store and I see Count Chocula cereal and Frankenberry cereal and Blueberry cereal, it kind of warms my heart. I don't know. I just, I like those characters. I like the season changes and it reminds me of being a kid. So early on in my Halloween celebrating days, I could dress like anything I wanted. Probably not a demon or something super morbid or grotesque, but I could dress up like something scary. That season didn't last too long because as I got older, my parents were like, you know, we're kind of honoring Satan if we dress up like scary stuff on his holiday. So let's celebrate his holiday, but let's just stay away from the scary stuff. Kind of like put a middle finger in Satan's face. We're not going to be scary. So we did that for a while. And then soon, man, we just got away from Halloween altogether. We had our own thing going on at our own church, like Hallelujah Night or Harvest Fest, which I always found pretty unique. All the churches always talking about community and opening up your house to your neighbors and just Getting to know people in your own neighborhood and the one night where people in your neighborhood that you don't know, they come knocking at your door or you can knock on theirs, we say, uh-uh, if I'm going to interact with you pagans, you're coming to our turf, to our party, to our church parking lot. <laughs> I'm really just picking. I'm picking, picking, picking. But... Let me tell you a true story about cereal. has got me thinking about marshmallow cereal. Jared, if this isn't a true story, you don't put it in the episode. All right. So listener, if you're hearing this, it's true. Because my brother kept it in there. So there's a cereal called Kaboom cereal. Now, my mom didn't let me and my brother eat junk cereal during the school year. We had to wait until the summer, and then we would get one box each per week of junk cereal. So there's one year we just saw this box. It was just glowing like the sun. It was like a super happy, colorful Box of cereal with a clown, and it's kaboom. I mean, how fun is that word? Kaboom. And it's so colorful, and there's marshmallows. You just can't go wrong. So we take kaboom home, and we are just so, so let down. It wasn't sweet. There was very little marshmallows. We were like, oh, this sucks, to the point where my mom made us finish that box before we had to get another one. So the next part may be hard to believe, but it was either the next year or the year after that that damn Kaboom box got us again. No, we didn't forget... About the year or two prior Where we were misled Into thinking it was a great cereal We just couldn't believe Looking at that colorful box That it would happen Two times in a row We're just like It just can't be Look at the box It's marshmallows It's colorful It's clowns It's gotta be good And as sure as I'm talking Into this microphone right now We had to learn our lesson again now, I'd be pretty messed up if I went and got some kaboom cereal. Now we finally learned our lesson. <laughs> so we got an extra episode for you today. It's Dr. Michael Heiser, and he writes some really interesting books up into the Nephilim conspiracies. And recently, I'll put all this in the show notes, wrote a book on demons very pleasant guy to talk to. I enjoyed this conversation a lot. Let me go ahead and tell you that patrons, they get a, this full interview. I did a lot of editing because it just got really long, lots of good stuff. If you are interested in this full episode and you are not a patron, just email me. I'd love to send it to you if you're super interested in this material. Be happy to send it your way. Now, one thing that I will say is that I don't lean into the big Nephilim demonic conspiracy sort of theory. Now, I say I don't lean into it. I guess what I really mean to say is I don't really think about it. I don't really pay much mind. And I guess if it's true, that's exactly what Satan and the demons want us to do is just not pay it any mind. But I don't think I just put a lot of, whole lot of stock into that that narrative but i will say this it is the one narrative that makes sense out of all the things in the bible and kind of brings continuity through the whole thing it's like there's certain perspectives and doctrines and theologies that it's like yeah that makes sense here but what about this or it makes sense here but what about this i've barely scratched the surface with all of this demon conspiracy Nephilim stuff but most of the time when I listen to a guy like this I'm like well he's crossed his T's and dotted his I's and can make sense from beginning to end better than I can so that's why I really like these conversations about this kind of stuff it's just extremely intriguing and I present to you now my friends happy Halloween and enjoy the doctor Michael Heiser Heiser. 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 All right, so I look forward to all the conversations I have on this podcast, or else I wouldn't schedule them, but some conversations I look forward to a lot, and this is one of them. You just came out with a a book called Demons, what the Bible really says about the powers of darkness, and I'll just tell you, Michael, that you and I probably, you and I are both Christians. We probably read the Bible differently Uh, a good bit, but I don't even want to touch on that because we talk about it so much on the show. I want to have a demon conversation from Mm -hmm. your context, your paradigm, how you read the Bible. And I am just so intrigued. So I'll tell you you one story to kind of kick us off. So I grew up in a Pentecostal household. And so see if you can follow all this. My great grandfather, he had two sons. One of them was my grandfather. So great grandfather was a non-practicing Catholic, his youngest son, non-practicing Catholic. Like they they weren't living like a a Christian life, no Mm -hmm. conversion or anything like that. My grandfather, the oldest son, gave his heart to Christ, had a complete transformation. And when my great grandfather was... Getting of age, of, of passing away, super old, he told us, he said that there's a little demon that he will sometimes see in his house, and this is his words, not ours, there's a that same little demon he will sometimes see in his uh, younger son's house, the one who had not converted, he said, I've never seen that little demon in my oldest son's house, the one who had completely converted. So obviously, our Pentecostal background, we're like, hell yeah, there ain't no <laughs> Satan in, in our house. And so I just, I, I kind of want to start as as at a place where what what are demons, what are they doing? Well, I mean, what what's... Are,
1: are you, okay, have you read my demons book?
0: Not yet, not yet.
1: Are you... Then I have to ask. This is, you know, this is for. Uh, this is so that you can come back later and not blame me for this conversation. Okay. Yes. Yes. Are you sure you want to know the answer?
0: Oh yes. Okay. Yes. Yes. Okay. I'm sure.
1: Well, in Christian tradition, the answer to that question is: Well, demons are fallen angels that fell with Satan. In the you know in the garden or before the garden a little bit before the garden or before Adam and Eve some sometime in primeval history, yeah, and that's where demons come from. Now the fundamental problem with that is there isn't a single verse in the Bible that actually says it. None of it. Okay, this is this is pure Christian tradition.
0: The only the, place the whole, you even
1: the whole thing. The whole thing so
0: so satan basically being the worship leader Lucifer wanted to be God and him and a third of the angels that's all okay
1: Lu- Lucifer the, the figure we call Lucifer which is actually a Latin term from the Vulgate in Isaiah 14. Right. Okay there is there is a primeval rebel okay right. who was a member of the heavenly host okay so that, that part is secure But this notion like you you used your worship leader and the third of the angels, there isn't a single (laughs) passage in the Bible that says any of that.
0: Not even the worship leader part?
1: No, not even the (laughs) worship leader part. In fact, the only place you even get third or three language associated with the devil is Revelation 12, which is the last book of the Bible. And if you read Revelation 12, the first nine or 10 verses, there's a war in heaven there. But it's associated with the birth of the Christ child. And the last time I looked at my Bible, that didn't happen before creation or before the fall, all right? So this whole idea is, is it's Milton's Paradise Lost. It's just Christian tradition. It's you know whatever it is. Now if you ask the same question to a first century Jew, that is not the answer you're going to get. The answer you're going to get to where do demons come from? And this is going to sound bizarre. But this is one of the few examples in what we call Second Temple Jewish literature, which is the stuff written between the Old Testament and the New Testament. This is one of the very few examples where all of the traditions agree. They're, all, they're, all, they're in lockstep on this one. Demons are the disembodied spirits of dead Nephilim, the okay. giants of Genesis 6. Gotcha. And their descendants, the Raphaim, the Anakim, all those Emes that are in the conquest narratives. That's where demons come from. And you say, well, where in the world do they get that? They get it because you have Rephaim, which is one of these giant clan terms, in hell, as it were, in passages like Isaiah 14:9, Ezekiel 32. In other words, this is where they live. This is these are those guys. Right. Now, all the traditions also agree that the offending sons of God of Genesis 6. Who you know cohabit with human women and father the Nephilim right. from whom the demons come. That the originally offenders there, the sons of God, are locked away in in part of the underworld, you know, referred to as the abyss or in Greek Tartarus. That's that's where where classical Greek you know, religion has the giants and the titans and stuff. And Peter actually uses that term in Second Peter. You know, yeah first peter you that they get sent to Tartarus, all right? so their spawn though, when you killed one of the giants their their disembodied spirit was not in jail. They run around to and fro and they seek reembodiment. okay, this is also why in the Gospels and in second temple Jewish literature. Evil spirits are referred to as unclean spirits. Now, we, we look at the word unclean, it's like you didn't use deodorant. They're right. like, you know, Tide commercials or something, you know.
0: You, you had know. a lustful thought.
1: Right. Unclean is a is a Torah concept. And lots of, you know, Torah things that are unclean are unclean because they are the result of forbidden mixture, which fits very nicely with the Genesis 6 thing. The Dead Sea Scrolls refer to demons as bastard spirits because that's what they are,
0: okay? (laughs) Yeah.
1: You know, so you get this terminology that's common in the Second Temple period. All the traditions agree, this is where demons come from. And so it's interesting when you get to the Gospels, what they're called, where they're encountered often matters because, you know, of the third of three rebellions. So we can this, and this, this is, again, is something else you'll never hear in church, all right? Something else that, again, Second Temple material, you, you can find right down the line, but nobody teaches this stuff. If you ask the average Christian today, why is the world a chaotic mess, all right, depravity and all this, the answer you're going to get, oh, Mike, don't you read your Bible? It's the fall. Right. If you ask, again, the average first century Jew, the same question that is not the answer you would get. The answer you would get is, well, there's actually three reasons why the world is such a mess. Now, the first one is the fall because that's where we have the first human rebellion and the first supernatural rebellion. You know, the rebel we know as Satan, in is
0: Satan. And in your context, Adam and Eve, literal historical figures, and that's when the fall happened?
1: Yeah, I, I, I don't. It's interesting you asked that because I just I've done a series of interviews, and yesterday was the latest one. With um, a guy named Josh Swamidas, who's a geneticist okay. in in Missouri, and he believes in evolution and Neanderthal and, and all that stuff because he's a geneticist. But he also believes in a historical Adam and Eve. Something gotcha. he has a whole book called the genealog genealogical Adam and Eve. But I don't want to rabbit trail on that. So yeah, I don't have any any problem with that. You know, historical Adam and Eve, and I also think that if Josh is right, and I have to assume he is because he has the PhD in genetics and I don't. Yeah. Um, that genetics doesn't have a problem with it either. Okay, the genetic record. But anyway, so that's where that's where evil and chaos starts. But then the second, there's a second rebellion. That's the Genesis six episode, Genesis six one through four, really one through five, because verse five links the sons of God, daughters of men, Nephilim weirdness, with the proliferation of human depravity. Permeating through the, the entire population. So that's that's the second reason why everything's a mess. And this is actually where a lot of, again, Jews who were you know, thinkers who were alive when Jesus, you know, was here in his incarnation, this is where they camped out a lot. A lot of human evil is attributed directly to demonic involvement, you know, just in, in all sorts of ways. We we can backtrack to this if you want later. But then there's a third rebellion. These are all different different guys, different groups, okay? Yeah. The third one is what happens at Babel. And if you read Genesis 1 through 11, you're you you're going to, you know, Genesis 11, 1 through 9, you read that and you go, well, I don't see any demons or angel, angels or anybody in here, you know, in the Tower of Babel story, and you're correct. But if you go to Deuteronomy 32, 8 to 9, that's a different story. And the problem is most of our English translations don't read what the esv reads or the nlt or the new rsv let me just quote esv to you because these translations follow the dead sea scrolls in the running text of their translation here's the verse this is verse eight when the most high again we know who that is that's god yeah gave to the nations their inheritance when he divided mankind and he fixed the borders of the peoples well like when did that happen that's babel okay that's easy he did so, he he fixed you know, the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. Well, there's that phrase sons of God that we, you know, it was in Genesis 6 as well, and Job 1 and Job 2, and Job, you know, 30, 38, you know, supernatural beings. But the Lord's portion, this is verse 9, is his people. Jacob is his allotted inheritance. So, what's this describing? In a nutshell, as you read through your Bible, you know, and you get past the flood, God is is relating to humanity and mass as a collective. And and you get the impression that sort of everybody kind of knows who the true God is. And we're just, you know, basically a bunch of screw ups. And, you know, we had a flood and all that, you know, and you get after the flood and God repeats the Edenic commands to the sons of Noah. And what do they do? You know, instead of, you know, spreading over the earth, Genesis 11 actually says, let's build a tower lest we be dispersed. Like, so we don't have to obey. Let's do this other thing. Okay. And you say, well, that sounds innocent. It's just a tower. Why is God so mad? Well, everybody agrees that the tower is a ziggurat. What's a ziggurat? It's part of a temple complex. Oh, look at that. You know, why do you build temple complexes? To locate the deity, to relate to the deity on your own terms. This is just, you know, religion 101. And so God says, No, 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 no. We're not going to do this. In fact, I've had it with you people. I'm going to divorce you. I'm going to abandon you. I'm going to forsake you. In fact, I'm going to, you don't want me to be your God. Here's what we're going to do. I'm going to assign you and allot you to other members of the heavenly host. And the two sides of the coin, I'm going to allot them to you too. And we're just going to see how that works. I am no longer going to be your God. You are no longer going to be my people. What I'm going to do instead is after I you know, distribute you know, the nations and assign you to the sons of God, I'm going to go to, to, to this guy named Abram in Ur of the Chaldees. And his wife can't have kids, which means she's perfect. Because I'm going to raise up a new humanity. And everybody's going to know that the only reason this bunch exists is because of my divine power. They are going to now be the conduit through which I restore Eden, and just so that we're clear, I'm not putting you on the shelf permanently because I'm going to use them. They're going to be them, and their seed are going to be the key to bringing you back into relationship with me. But we're just going to do this for a while. I'm still interested in you. You're you're my imagers. I don't I don't you know hate you, but I'm judging you. I'm punishing you.
0: So the divorce is still motivated story. from love.
1: I think so. Yeah. Yeah. And so demons come from the middle, you know, problem because of, of the whole sons of God episode. But the principalities and powers are not demons.
0: They're bigger. And let's let's time out right there. So just so I make sure I have all this straight in my head. So there, if there never was a rebellion with a third of the demons, does the figure Satan or the devil and the head honcho that we mm-hmm. always speak of – does that person exist?
1: Yeah, I I believe in a real in a real Satan. Now, the rebel of Genesis three has never called Satan in the Old Testament. Um, you'll never see the serpent equated with Satan in the Old Testament. You get that in the New Testament. You also get it in intertestamental Ju- Judaism. But what what Satan really is is a title, a term. Yeah, Satan means adversary, opposer, someone who opposes something. And in this case, there was a primeval rebel, supernatural being that opposed what God wanted to do. And he led humanity astray. God curses him, he curses Adam, curses Eve. I mean, I, I think there was a historical fall with a real supernatural being that gets out of line, wants to be like the most high. But but the whole the the Christian tradition of fallen angels actually applies more to the to the guys in the third rebellion because they do deliberately go astray. The demons again are something different. You know, again they're the disembodied dead you know of the nephilim okay so they're that's not a rebellion that just is what they are um but the third one is is significant because those are the ones that are the principalities and powers they're the princes of daniel they're paul's principalities and powers how do we know that because if they're allotted and assigned to the nations and then they become corrupt a la psalm 82 that's what the whole psalm's about Look at the vocabulary Paul uses for the powers of darkness. He does occasionally use demon, but most of the time it's what? Principalities, powers, rulers, thrones, dominions, lords. Okay, he has all these terms. What do they all have in common? They are terms of geographical dominion, both in the human sphere and, you know, in this case, the supernatural sphere. Those are the guys. And they're a much bigger problem than a demon. A demon turns somebody into a flesh puppet. Okay, you know that that's bad. I mean, I don't want to be that person,
0: right? You know,
1: but one of these guys is a manipulator of people on a geopolitical level or a territorial level, and and this plays out in the Old Testament in a number of passages that, that we just miss. Why does Naaman and the leper? Okay when he gets healed of leprosy, the little Israelite girl, that's a slave girl says, oh, you know, quit complaining about your leprosy. Go over to talk to the prophet. He'll take care of you. And he's like, what? But he, but he does it. And, you know, after the whole episode is done, he says, you know, now I know that, that Yahweh is the God of all gods and I will offer sacrifice to no other. What does he ask Elisha for? Or, you know, what, what does he ask the prophet for? Is it, would it be okay if I, if I take, back home with me dirt can i load my my mule up here with as much dirt as it can haul and yeah he's like sure yeah that'll work why does he ask for it he wants an attachment to the to holy ground to the ground where the god of israel reigns because he's going to have to go back to syria and he describes the problem you know, I'm a I'm an important guy. I'm captain of the guard. I got to take my king into the temple of Ramon, and he's kind of old, you know. You know, it's like when he bows down, I got to go with him, and so he wants dirt. I don't know if he's going to carry it. Maybe he's going to offer sacrifice on that dirt, but he wants an attachment to Yahweh. Why is it that the Philistines in First Samuel five? You know, the whole comedy with Dagon. You know, they capture the Ark of the Covenant. They put the Ark of the Covenant in the temple of Dagon, and you know, that eventually Dagon winds up to be a headless stump, you know, and we, we laugh at that because it is funny, all right? But if we miss in First Samuel 5 what it says, it says, to this day, the priests of Dagon do not walk on the threshold, you know, of Dagon, you know, where they yep. found Dagon. Why not? Because they're not taking any chances. That ground is now under dominion of Yahweh. Yeah. So we're going to do our little ritual stuff. We're just going to walk around that spot. Yeah. Uh, again, why does David complain that when he gets kicked out of Judah and he's holed up with the Philistines for a while, why does he complain that, oh, how am I going to pray to the Lord, my God? He's not denying omnipresence. He, he has this sense that I need to be connected. I need to be on Yahweh's turf to have a proper relationship with him. So this is what scholars call cosmic geography. You know, and and this factors into what we popularly call things like spiritual warfare and principalities, powers, you know, all this. Why why are Michael and the devil fighting in Jude over the body of Moses? Because Moses is buried outside Yahweh's land. He's buried at a place that has a couple of place names that are interesting. Ovot. And avarim, avot, means spirits. It was viewed as the place, as like the gateway to hell. This is the gateway to the netherworld. Okay? Avarim means those who pass over. Okay? Again, we even use that language now for dying. I mean, Moses, his body is over there, and so there arose a tradition about, you know, is the body of Moses in trouble? You know, Michael's like, I'll take care of this, you know? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You know, there's all sorts of passages like this that we think are just too weird for consideration, or we don't know what to do with them. But somebody living, you know, in in ancient Israel, you know, first century Judaism, they understand. This is going to sound stupid, but they understand their demonology a whole lot better than we
0: do. Yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> and, and and this is this is what I this is what I do. Okay, my my shtick, my one string banjo is this. Tell me if this doesn't make sense or not. If we understand that God used people to write the Bible, and those people that God used lived a few thousand years ago, and they actually wrote to people who were alive when they were alive, might it be a good strategy to read the Bible through their eyes? To have them living in your head when you read. See, we talk a lot about interpreting the Bible in context. What we typically mean, I got to look at the verses before and after the one I'm looking at. That's context. Well, okay, that's one. But but what we do is we filter the Bible through our own traditions, all of which are post-biblical. Okay, the right context for interpreting the Bible is not Catholicism, it's not evangelicalism, it's not Pentecostalism. It's not the church fathers. I mean, just just give me, I'll give you the grocery. It's none of these things. These are all post-biblical, after the biblical period, by centuries all the way down to two millennia, post-biblical contexts. None of them are the actual context that the stuff was written in. So we'd probably get more out of it if we put the work in, to have the Israelite living in our head when we read the Old Testament and the first century Jew living in our head when we read the New Testament.
0: If, if we thought in that, in, in the ancient context, like you're describing, would we see, would our narrative of heaven and hell be different? Because I've heard that when Jesus talked about hell or Gehenna, for instance, they didn't have any sort of concept of like eternal destruction.
1: It depends. That question specifically would depend how you define destruction and, and you know, in terms like life and, you know, the, the vocabulary for eternal. Let's, let's just pull these apart a little bit. It's common in Old Testament scholarship, even within evangelicalism, to say that the Old Testament people had no concept of a positive afterlife when, when you die that really isn't the case there there are several passages especially in the psalms that talk about being with the lord after death very vague terms you know very general so what what you have is you have sheol the underworld the realm of the dead that is inescapable so if that if you define destruction as i'm never going to get out of the realm of the dead okay well that you know there you go um, if it means annihilation, well, they probably didn't have a, a concept of that. but as far as going to the realm of the dead, everybody goes there, the righteous and the unrighteous everybody goes to, because everything dies. everybody dies okay they they knew that it was the hope of the righteous though to to be extracted out by yahweh and and your your eternal destiny was dependent on him his his grace toward you in that regard. So they did have a concept of a positive afterlife. Um, when you take that to the New Testament, for me, both what we'll call the traditional view, you know, this e- eternal torment idea and annihilationism, to me, they're both on the table. Because the, the, the sticking passage, I think, well, I'll call it the sticking passage, the crucial passage for me, is at the end, death itself is destroyed. So I don't know how you, how you can have eternal dying if death is dead. Like, how does that work? You know, yeah. So, in other words, do we read that metaphorically or literally? Who knows? Okay. Right. So it would make a lot of sense. You know, not annihilation to me makes a lot of sense because of that line. Okay. But you know, I it, it's possible, you know, to to argue either view. Now, as far as the, the eternality of this, the, the Hebrew term is olam, which can be translated everlasting, long time, uh, and I and it, it can and should be translated eternal in some contexts. Now that's a Hebrew term. The Greek term for that is ion or ionos. This is the term that the the Septuagint translators use. The Septuagint is the ancient Greek translation yep. of the Old Testament. They used for olam. So if you go to you go to Pat, you, Psalm ninety. Which in the Septuagint is actually Psalm 89. The numbering's different. But this is the one where Moses, it's the, supposedly the Psalm of Moses, where it says, From everlasting, from Olam to Olam, thou art God. Well, there it has to be eternal because God didn't have a beginning and he won't have an end. I mean, that makes sense. And there are other passages where eternal is a good translation, but most of the time it's this long time thing. Yeah. Now, the problem, you know, a lot of people want to use that and and argue for annihilation. But again, I think the best argument for annihilation is death is dead, all right? Right. Which, that isn't a really good strategy because if you flip it around, then, well, why isn't eternal life? Not really eternal either. Maybe that'll... And the problem there is, is for the righteous, the afterlife destiny of the righteous must be eternal because... It is linked to God's own existence, yeah. which does not have an end. Yeah. So it's it's a little bit of an unfair hermeneutic to yeah. to endorse it on yeah. one side and deny it on the other. Yeah. But you know, annihilationism to me is still on the table because of the the death death of death passage.
0: Yeah. And see, I'm a heretic. I I think that there'll be a universal reconciliation. Mm-hmm. That would be how I would take death being dead. So. Jude one six. Who's this talking about the angels who did not keep their positions of authority? Because yeah. I always thought that those would be the sons of God who agree. created the Nephilim. Yeah. But it sounds—is that who they are?
1: Yeah, I, I agree. I, I think I think this is a reference to the sons of God of Genesis six, and I think the same is true of Second Peter two four, gotcha. which is almost identical to this. Not so not, the
0: demons. As the the spirits of the Nephilim, they are not in bondage, but the ones who came to Correct. create them were. Correct. Correct. Is there any like? Is there any theory or? I, I mean, this sounds really bizarre. Sure. Of a question, of course. but <laughs> hell, like, was it rape? Was it consensual? Like, were these ladies so evil they were just like, yes, bring on a, a principality to have sex it, with? Or it,
1: it's interesting because it. In Genesis 6, let's just start with the Old Testament. In Genesis 6, usually the translation will have something like, the sons of God came and they they took them wives. So right. it makes it sound like they all had nice little ceremonies and right. you know, weddings. You know, hey, check out my directory on Target. You know, it's just it, that kind of thing. <laughs> what, what, it, what it actually is... It, <laughs> The same word for wife in Hebrew is is just you know women. So it could be just take take a woman, and if you if you look at it that way, then it does sound more forcible. Right. Okay. You know we're not we're not we're not doing the wedding ceremony or anything like that. It, it sounds more forcible. Now, Talk
0: about PTSD. Holy <laughs> cow! Raped by a principality.
1: <laughs> when you get into into intertestamental uh, Jewish literature, there's actually a divided opinion. To, on, on this again, they they're all talking about it, but there's there's at least like in the book of Enoch, which you've probably heard of. There, yep. There's there's this notion that the the sons of God were seduced. Okay, in other words, that that sort of puts the shoe on the other foot. So that that tradition was also uh, current, you know, in uh, in that period of, in, in Jewish thought. But if there's nothing like like the seduction thing in Genesis, it. it 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 can be read you know to be more aggressive yeah you know more violent now to be fair you can use the same verb with the same noun elsewhere in the hebrew bible where it does refer to a marriage so we got to be fair either one is possible but you know the, the marriage thing wouldn't really be a seduction either that's something a little bit different in, in nuancing but but the 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 aggressive idea is very possible, you know, from from what we have in Genesis six.
0: I think the toughest thing for me to wrap my mind around, like if if and, and it's so interesting, uh, Michael, like I, I'm in a I'm in a place now to where I just I'm so you would probably think in an unhealthy way, just so <laughs> open handed and and just man, I, I feel so puzzled with the Bible and like, I even wonder sometimes: Are some of the historical violence written down? Was it the Israelites thinking that God told them to do this violent stuff, and actually weren't hearing correctly from God? Like, I'm grounded in. You should in read Jesus unseen realm. What's that?
1: You should read unseen realm because, surprise, surprise, I have a different take on that too.
0: Yeah, yeah, I th- yeah. I,
1: I think the the. Okay, let me just throw this out. If you look at the conquest narratives, right? There are a series of, of verbs there. They are not all killing verbs. Some of them are drive out, expel, you know, that kind of thing. The verbs of killing occur in places, you know, episodes in places where the Anakim were spotted. The, these, What's that? These are the, the Anakim are the descendants of the Nephilim, according to okay. numbers 13, 32, and 33. The conquest starts on the Transjordan, the other side. Remember, after the 40 years of wandering, Moses Mm -hmm. and Joshua cross over, and they go up the Transjordan. And and God tells them, this is Deuteronomy 2 and 3. He says, now look, don't hassle the Moabites. Don't hassle the Ammonites. Why? Because the descendants of Esau have already eliminated the Amim and the Zamzumim and the Zuzim. These are Rephaim. Don't worry about them. They're yeah. taken care of. You go up to Bashan and you confront Og of Bashan and Sion, the rulers of the Amorites, who, according to Amos 2, 9, and 10, were tall as cedars. They're also called Rephaim in Deuteronomy 2 and 3. My point is, I believe that the conquest narrative begins and ends and has has the, the killing is not indiscriminate genocide. The killing is about eliminating the vestiges of the nephilim bloodlines. Yeah. Now people are going to get caught up in that because they're sprinkled throughout the land. But how does Joshua define victory in Joshua eleven? There yeah. are no more Anakim in the land, except for the ones that ran away to the Philistine cities of Gath. You know, which guess guess what? Who do we who do we see later? Yeah. Goliath, the Gittite. Him yep. and his brothers. Who eliminates them? David. I mean, who, who eliminates the vestiges of the Nephilim? Look at these three guys: Moses, Joshua, and David. Yeah. What do all three of those guys have in common? They are types of the Messiah.
0: Yeah. See, and and that's that's what what I was about to say too is where I'm I'm either going to be where I'm at right now, which my listeners are are well familiar with, with just like more questions and answers, and I'm just camping. That's a idol, good thing. I, that's right. A good or thing. I'm either going to be there, or I'm I'm on your team, and and it's it's so crazy. Even though some of this stuff just sounds so outrageous, mm-hmm. it to me is the most like comprehensive explanation for how everything is put together. Like for someone that that says, "Well, what what does this mean? That doesn't make sense." The sons of God and de- demons and all this stuff, like your narrative at the very least, no matter how outrageous it sounds, it, it's logically consistent from beginning to end. And I, you know, and I, and I don't know if I'm, I don't think I am at where you are, but I don't think I'll be shocked either at the end of all things. When I realize, oh, wow, that all that stuff Michael had, right. The only thing I think you'd be wrong in is I, as I really am, I I really am convinced that, that Jesus wins us all. But, uh, Mm -hmm
1: know oh, I have friends who are Universalists. So I, know, I know what you're talking about there. Um, you know I would I would say this on the one hand, it's very obvious that when you get into demonology and angelology, there's a lot of <clears throat> there's a lot of stuff that just sounds truly bizarre. Yeah, okay. But all of it extends from a single proposition that is not bizarre. and that is there is a God. Yeah. That is a proposition that's done really well for millennia, despite being constantly attacked by some of the best minds that humanity has ever produced. It's still here yeah. and it's yeah. still coherent. Yeah. Now, now, what do I mean by that? Well, if, if, if we believe there's a God, then we ask simple questions like, can this God do anything? Would he act intentionally? Right. Is he capable of creating beings who are like himself, both in the spiritual world and the, in the, in the human world. And if he is, might those beings like do things too? Okay. Might might they act with intelligence and purpose? You know, they have free will so they can go astray. And it, yeah. in other words, all of these things that, that filter down into what we would think of as these bizarre passages, they all inevitably extend from the proposition that there is a God and he does things with intention.
0: Yeah. And and yeah, and and what throws me for a loop too. And I, I actually had a debate on here. Well, it was it was more of a a fun discussion. But there's a a, a Dr. Tony Jones who who kind of argued on from a standpoint of demons they they're not personified uh, entities but more representation of evil and the the reason why that piques my interest a little bit and I I would not say that I agree although I don't think he's he's crazy is it makes no sense that you would have this rebellion of very very powerful beings that can really mess humans up pretty and mess humanity up and God just not saying, you know what? To hell with y'all. If 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 that's your plan, I'm going to destroy you once and for all. Humans down on earth, they got enough problems of their own. Like they've got their own sinful nature. They've got selfishness that they're battling. They've got mm-hmm. uh, unforgiveness and hatred and blah, 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 blah. Last think, thing they need you, is you egging them on also.
1: <laughs> I, I, I think you sort of answered your own question though. Let, let's just play with a thought experiment. Let's say God destroys all the the members of the heavenly host who are now in rebellion. Yeah. How does that help humanity? It might help them maybe do less worse things, but they're still estranged from God and they're still going to abuse the good gift of God. That is their free will. You know, it, it, it it's not going to result in them, you know, being righteous and doing, you know, the right, the, the right things because, while they are like God, while we are like God, we are not God. Yeah. Which means it, it, that means more than I'm not omnipotent. It means I lack God's perfect nature. Yep. Okay. It means I'm going to fall victim to wanting or or to not wanting an authority over me. It's the root of all this is, is the hunger for autonomy. Right. And the resistance, you know, to, to have to report to resistance to authority, you know, and, and, so it doesn't really help. And and on the human side of it, of course, the reason why God, you know, doesn't, you know, eliminate, you know, all humans is because this is what he wanted from the beginning. And he actually wanted it in both the spiritual world and the, and the physical world. God wanted to have a family. He wanted to create creatures like himself that he could relate to. And to do that, he has to share his attributes with them so that they can do those things. Eden was again, the, this is all unseen realm stuff. Eden was the place where God dwelled. This is why Eden is called a, a garden and a mountain. A lot of people yeah. don't realize it's called a mountain, but this is, this is imager of where the gods dwell or where, you know, where gods would naturally dwell. And, and, and that is in Eden. And, and, and that's where humans are and God's own entourage, you know, the supernatural family and the human family were supposed to be blended from the beginning where God is. They are, they are, and are and God wants humans there. Humans are fit. They were, they were created to be fit for sacred space you know this this wasn't an offense this is, should be the most natural thing in the world and and be, but because god knows that look to, to have this i have to create these beings that have these attributes one of which is freedom and so god's not surprised that it fails because he also knows that they're not him yeah but but the the the, the cool thing is is that God, knowing all that and knowing where it would lead and and the tragedy and the disaster and the suffering and all this. and We can get mad at God for this, but I think if we're honest, we should still be glad. Is that God said to himself, essentially, I would rather have a world in which this happens than to not have them at all. So yeah. yeah, evil is what evil is because of God's decision to have us. But yeah. That's a good thing.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and I I could not be sane if I believed that and believed that people were tortured forever and ever and ever cuz that just would that would crush me. Um I could kind of live with that from an annihilationist point of view, but with what you just said, as far, you know, it, within my universalism context, that 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 that, definitely-
1: yeah, the, the the annihilationist would 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 simply argue God is being consistent in that He allows His intelligent creatures, again, who, who share this attribute and their free will to make their choice. Yeah. And and when their choice is made, if they choose to live life now, and then if if they're not, you know, followers of Jesus and they they choose death then god's going to let them make that choice yeah and yeah. and he's not going to like it but he's going to be consistent you know with it yeah and, and i i agree with you the the eternal damnation thing does seem to sort of defy that sort of consistency not only in that way but other ways as well yeah um you know so again that, that's yeah. why to me annihilation it d- deserves you know, deserves consideration, legitimate consideration.
0: Yeah. Michael, this has been awesome. I got two more questions. One is, do you think that there's any chance for reconciliation of spiritual entities? And if not, what makes them different Mm -hmm. than the worst of human beings that's still living today?
1: Yeah, I, I, I don't think scripture teaches that there is a chance for them. And that's rooted in the incarnation. This is Hebrews 2, that, that the plan of redemption revolves around the, the you know, the son, second person of the Trinity becoming a man. He didn't become an angel. He became a man. Makes sense. And, and so, so the plan of redemption is, is linked to humanity. And that's why in, in, in Hebrews 2, for which of the angels did he do this, that, and the other thing? And of course the answer is, it's rhetorical, you know, none of them, you know, Colossians 1, 16 about the, re, you know, all things being reconciled to God. I, I personally think that the, the best way to read that is like, it's kind of like a reset button. In other yeah. words, everything is restored to the way things originally were, you know, prior to yeah. a fall, you know, so we don't, we don't have rebellion. We don't have sin. We don't have all these other things, and then the question becomes: Well, you know, is do we have to say then that that everybody who lives since them is is brought back into relationship with God because they didn't exist before then either? You know, so, so that that's where you have the conversation between the annihilationist and the yeah, yeah. And, and the universalist.
0: Yeah. So, my last question, Michael: How do you personally? grapple with the tension of God's sovereignty and omnipotence and at the same time lending credence to spiritual warfare and what your role in it. Because I feel like you could make a logical case to say, well, God's sovereign. He's going to do whatever and allow whatever what what part do i have to play and then you have some people that go the complete opposite direction and feel like we we have all the responsibility your
1: your your freedom your freedom to act must be legitimate because it is an attribute that god shared with you god is not a robot in other words free will is genuine that's that's item number 1 item number 2 is i think scripture is clear that foreknowledge does not necessitate predestination let me let me give you the, the, what I think is the clearest passage on this. First Samuel 23. This is David and, at the city of Kyla. So the city of Kyla is under attack by the Philistines, and David goes to help them out, and he beats up on the Philistines and delivers the city. And so he decides, well, we need some R&R. So he goes into the city, and somehow, again, if you just read the narrative, Saul finds out that David is in the city of Kyla, and it makes the note that the city of Kyla has walls. Yeah. It's really important. So Saul says, David, you idiot. I finally, I finally have you because what I'm going, all I need to do is go down there and surround the city. It's classic siege warfare. And I just wait. We cut off the crops. We cut off the water. We just starve them out. And and while we're doing that, we say, look, we're going to leave if you hand over David. We'll leave you alone. Yeah. So David, in the meantime, hears that, that Saul has gotten wind of, of what, what, where he's at. And so he says, hey, bring over the ephod. I got to ask God some questions. <laughs> yeah. So he asked God two questions. Will Saul come down to the city? And God says, yep. Yeah. And the second question is, will the men of Kyla, you know, the, the guys that I just saved their butts, will they hand me over to Saul? and God says yes they will. So what does David do? He does what you and I would do. See ya. Okay, I'm out of here. Now what you know, he leaves. Now here's the important thing. Saul hears that he's gone so he never actually, you know, comes down and uh, the stuff doesn't happen. And that that's that's the, the serious thing because God foreknows two things that never happen. So foreknowledge does not necessitate predestination
0: well 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 once again may it's consistent <laughs> for sure that's that's well, that's good stuff man
1: see this the, the reform crowd doesn't like to hear that but it's actually in their own creeds if we say that right. god foreknows all things real and possible well the possible can't be real or they would all be real and they'd be conflicting because they're all different possibilities you know So this is not a a newfangled doctrine that Mike, you know, came up with. This is very consistent. God foreknows everything, all the possibilities, but he lets people do what they do because this is the way he made them. To use the chess, you know, analogy, what's more impressive? You know, God sits down with you at a table and he looks at you across the table the chessboard and says, we're going to play chess today. And you're going to lose because I predestinated all your moves. (laughs) Or God looks at you across the chessboard and says, "We're going to play a game of chess today, and you can move wherever you want, and I'm
0: still going to win. Still going to beat your ass. (laughs) (laughs) You know, like what?
1: That's a little more impressive. In other words, God doesn't have to change the rules halfway through the game. Right? He is. He is active all the time in everybody's life to get them to choose things that that are good for them to choose so that he can steer each life and steer what we call the kingdom of God toward resolution, toward the restoration of Eden, the accomplishment of the Great Commission, the fullness of the Gentiles, all this stuff. You know, God's big enough to do that. He doesn't have to predestinate everything. So he didn't predestinate the fall. He foreknew it. But he's not like, come on, get on with the sin. I gotta get the program going. Yeah. You know, yeah. he's not doing that.
0: Yep. Yep. So the truth about demons is far stranger and even more fascinating than what's commonly believed. Your book is called Demons, What the Bible Really Says About the Powers of Darkness, and your podcast, the Naked Bible dot com. Mm-hmm. And then what's your what's your nonprofit?
1: Nonprofit is org. It's spelled M-I-Q-L-A-T. So the first two projects we we've had we've been in existence about five years is the my work that I own translation rights to we pay to have translated and put on the online for free anybody can reuse it in any form at any point without permission so that that consists of the book supernatural which is the light version of unseen realm it's you know it doesn't have all the footnotes and all that stuff in it and a little book called what does God want. Which is for seekers or new believers.
0: Nice, nice. All right. So if you were a betting man, did my great grandfather see a little demon?
1: I I would say given given your story that he didn't see him everywhere. In other words, yeah. in other words, he made this distinction and and it was meaningful to him. Yeah. I would say chances are, yeah, he saw something.
0: All right, we got a treat for you next week. want to let you know that Dr. Kristen Cobez dumay the author of Jesus and John Wayne, will be coming on next week. I'm looking forward to sharing this with you. Is Jesus and John Wayne? How White Evangelicals Corrupted a Faith and Fractured a Nation. Ooh. it's going to make people mad or it's going to make people clap. Love